If you have your Bibles, open them with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. There are a few things that can be tougher on a family relationship than financial crisis. And when that financial crisis is compounded by health crises, it even doubles the stress on families. Sometimes I, when I get to thinking about the crises that many of our families have faced and are facing, it makes me want to dig regularly in the Word of God to try to find something I can say to people to try to help people, try to encourage people. Because I know that whenever I struggle I hunger for some sort of practical biblical advice that I can take just to make it through another day. And then I get to feeling kind of guilty because even the worst of us that I know of has it really, really well. In the time that you and I will spend here in this one service, there will be Hundreds of children who will die of starvation. I read in one place that in Africa alone, the continent of Africa, a child dies every eight seconds from not having enough food to eat. We will be here 60 minutes. You do the math. So we really are quite well off in comparison. Of course, the way we work, though, is a struggle for us is defined by, by a deviation from what we are used to. We get used to a certain standard of living, and then if there's any deviation in a negative direction, then we define that, or that fits our definition of a crisis. And I'm not trying to minimize that. Uh, it's, the, it's the world in which you and I live here. But I think there are, if we're honest, there are people in most other nations of the world who would scoff at what we would call a crisis. They would be glad to trade with us. But some of us do face difficulties, some financial, some health, especially in the past uh, year plus time that we've been here in America. Some of us have uh, watched our jobs grow in jeopardy. Some of us have watched our investment portfolio uh, almost disappear. And even if, if that is not the case with any of us here, and thankfully, I'm sure that there are some folks who have not felt the brunt of an economic crisis at all, I think that the fact that there is a crisis ought to stop, cause us to stop and think about how a crisis affects our relationship with God. Listen, you don't have to lose your job to think about that. You don't have to be in jeopardy of losing your health to think about how a crisis, especially an unexpected crisis, an unforeseen one, affects your relationship with the Lord. Uh, 1 Kings 17 deals with one of the most colorful characters in all the Bible, the prophet Elijah. He comes on the stage in a whirlwind and disappears in almost as, as extravagant uh, a manner. But while he is here, what a difference he makes in the lives of the people. He primarily prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. You will recall that for the first 120 years of Israel's national history, they were one nation made up of 12 tribes. 
Then after Solomon died and his son took over, he decided to increase the taxes of the people and it resulted in a division of the kingdom. Ten of the tribes produced the, uh, came together to, to produce the northern kingdom of Israel and two of the tribes, Benjamin and Judah, came together to, uh, to become the southern kingdom of Judah. Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. And Elijah is prophesying somewhere in the middle 800s B.C. to the northern kingdom of Israel. The king is Ahab. His wife is Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Syria, Phoenicia. They worship Baal in Syria, Phoenicia. And so when, Je when Ahab married Jezebel, Jezebel uh, persuaded Ahab to persuade the nation of Israel to include the worship of Baal in their national worship. And Ahab became convinced that it was Baal, not the God of Israel, who controlled the rains, the rainy seasons and the harvest. And so he had the nation praying to Baal, send us rain, send us a harvest. And Elijah, almost as a lone voice... He wasn't alone, but he was about the only one speaking. Said to Ahab, he says, just to show you who's really in charge, here's what God says. It's not going to rain here for the space of three years. And you can cry all you want to, and you can talk to Baal all you want to, and you can do whatever you want to do. But you can just count on this. The seven-day forecast is not going to change for three years. Well, News like that will get you killed. And Elijah knew it. And that's where we find Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. Verse number 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. Now Zarephath of Sidon is the capital of Syria, Phoenicia where the king of Syria, Phoenicia lived. And the king of Syria, Phoenicia was the father of Jezebel. Don't you have a better place for me to go, Lord? Like Siberia? Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Do you know who is the first to die in a famine? A widow is. You know why? She has nobody to care for her. So God says, go to Zarephath and Sidon, the capital of Syria, Phoenicia, and I want you to go visit a widow. And Elijah is thinking, you have got to be kidding me. So he went. Maybe he wasn't thinking that. He went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called. And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, well, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said. But first, 
make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. And she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there's nothing that I'm about to say that is anywhere near the quality, nor has anywhere near the authority as what I've just read. Because what I've just read is your word. Lord, I pray, though, that you'd give us something to say. Something to say from this passage of Scripture that will make a difference in our lives. Lord, I pray that something would encourage somebody to take another step toward you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever uh, entered a sweepstakes and won something that was guaranteed for you for life if you won it? Have you ever, anybody in here ever won anything like that where you were guaranteed it for life? Not a soul. Well, companies have offered that kind of thing, you know. Uh, I was uh, curious about a sweepstakes that was offered just uh, two or three years ago by the ice cream chain Ben and Jerry's. Any of you ever heard of Ben and Jerry's? Raise your hand. How many of you ever eaten any Ben and Jerry's ice cream? Raise your hand. Yeah. Two or three years ago, they offered a sweepstakes in which you could submit an application, a 100-word application, and if you won it, the first prize was that you, they would award you the CEO of Ben and Jerry's. Second place was ice cream for life at Ben and Jerry's. Ice cream for life. I didn't hear exactly how it went, but that was the sweepstakes that they offered within the last three years. I read about another company that offered, um, that offered a free beverage for life. If you'd enter a certain sweepstakes, and if you won the sweepstakes, you'd get the beverage for life. It was, it was a beverage that had a certain kind of, of top to the, the uh, bottle the beverage was in, except of all the beverages that they sell worldwide, there were five different bottles on which the lid was solid gold. And if you happened to get one of those gold lids and you brought it into the bottler of this particular beverage, you would get that beverage for life, guaranteed. Anybody here get that one? Raise your hand. Anybody? Not a soul. This is the most unluckiest group of people I've ever seen in my life. There was an underwear company that had a sweepstakes. 
And if you won the sweepstakes, you got underwear for life. Enough about that. BP, British Petroleum, offered what they called a drive-for-life sweepstakes in which they offered a lifetime supply of gas to the person who won it and they offered a gas tank to put it in. You heard me right. A lifetime's worth of gas and a gas tank to put it in. In fact, the person who won this sweepstakes with British Petroleum was given a Ford F-150 pickup every five years. Anybody win that? Most unbelievable luck of anybody I've ever seen. Somebody won that. What, what is it that you would like to have if you could enter a sweepstakes and win something guaranteed for life? You ever thought about that? I wonder if anybody, would you like toilet paper for life? Would anybody here like that? Nobody? Vitamins. Some people said Diet Coke. No. Some people say groceries. Some people would say a vacation. Vacation rentals, free. Whatever answer we give says a lot about ourselves. It says a lot about what we place at the very center of our lives. You see, a lifetime guarantee. But lifetime guarantees are often grounded in, in wishful thinking because for them to really do us any good, they have to be grounded in someone or something who can deliver on the promise. For instance, let's take British Petroleum. The deal with a lifetime of gas? Isn't that pretty arrogant of BP to offer something with a lifetime guarantee? Don't you think it is? I mean, first of all, they have to guarantee us that they're going to be around as long as we're going to be around, right? Hello? Hello? So the guarantee is dependent upon someone or something that is truly trustworthy. After all, a lifetime offer is only as good as the person who stands behind the offer. All of which brings me back to this widow of Zarephath. She's about to die. She believes she's about to die. She's gathering sticks to cook the last meal for her and her boy. It's, there's a famine in the land. There's been no rain, not only in the northern kingdom of Israel, but throughout all of that portion of the Middle East. No rain, no crops, no food, no bread. And she's getting ready to die. And here comes this prophet of God, Elijah. Elijah must have been a very odd-looking figure because in the New Testament, when John the baptizer comes along, they say that he is Elijah. They say that he is the, uh, the epitome of Elijah. He has the personality of Elijah, the look of Elijah. I don't know how they knew exactly what Elijah looked like, but Elijah must have been a pretty gruffy-looking fella. He lived pretty much out in the wilderness. He'd prophesy to kings, and then he'd disappear out in the wilderness. He'd come back, and he'd prophesy to the king's wife, and then he'd disappear out into the wilderness. And he shows up at the gate where this widow is gathering sticks for her final meal, and he says to her, I want you to get me a drink of water. Now she's kind of like a waitress almost here. She's come up, 
He's, he, has, he has come in the restaurant and he has sat down and she's come up to him and she said, uh, can I get your drink order? And he says, yeah, I'd like a drink of water. And she says, okay, I'll be right back. And he says, I'm already ready to, ready to order. I'd like some bread. Well, we don't have any bread. In fact, I'm gathering sticks for the final meal for me and my boy. I have just a little bit of flour, a handful, and just a little bit of, of oil left in a jar, just enough to make some bread. And I'm going to make it, we're going to eat it, and we're going to die. We have nothing left. Now, by this time, Elijah has already been tested. God, at some point before this time, had said, you go, to, you go to Ahab and you dare to tell him that he's following the wrong God. Let me tell you, that right there, most people would not have done that. Even if they agreed with God in the matter, they would not have gone to Ahab. That would be like going to Don Corleone and said, you, you are ugly and you smell bad. But he did it. And not only did he go to Ahab and say it's going to be a famine, no rain for three years. But he dared to challenge Ahab to a duel between him as God's prophet and, and, and uh, several hundred of the prophets of Baal. So he's already been tested. And then God says, I want you to go to Zarephath. There are a lot of places Elijah would rather have gone besides Zarephath, but God says, I want you to go to Zarephath. You know, Jezebel's hometown. I want you to go to Zarephath. And when you get there, there's going to be a widow. Can't you find somebody with some provision, with some capability here, Lord? No, I want you to go find a widow. He finds her right in the gate. She's easy to pinpoint. By this time, he already knows he's in it. He's, he's all in. Whatever God says, he's going to do. And so he looks at this widow who said, I don't have anything to eat and I don't have anything for, with which to make bread for you. And he says this. He says, go do exactly what you said you're going to do. But he said, make a small piece of bread for me first and then make it for yourself. Now, this seems a little selfish to me, but that's not it. That's, selfish motive was not what Elijah was about. God was using Elijah to test her faith. Ladies and gentlemen, there are times in our walk with God when God will challenge us and stretch us to do what we could not do in our own power. And so he challenges this lady. And he says, make me a piece of bread first, and then you make yours. And he says, here's what my God says to you. Now keep in mind, this is a woman who's in the center of Baal worship. And Elijah says, here's what my God says to you. Your flour will never run out, and your oil will never run out. You will never be without food until the day the rain starts. And the Bible indicates that there wasn't even a question in this woman. Maybe she was that desperate. Maybe she was that hungry. I, I do know that sometimes when we get so desperate, we will cling on to even the least hint of good news. Whatever it was, she went right to doing what Elijah said to do. It was a guarantee. It was a lifetime guarantee as long as it didn't rain. But it came with strings attached. God offers guarantees to you and me. And let me tell you, 
He's good with his guarantee, but his guarantees come with strings attached. String number one is this. It requires a response. The widow could have sat there and listened to Elijah all day long. She could have nodded her head in agreement. She could have raised her, head, her hand in worship. She could have opened her mouth in amens the whole time he was speaking and never done anything that he said to do. And she would have missed out on the guarantee that God through Elijah was offering. It required a response. God may provide the flour, but she had to do the baking. Second, God's gifts, God's providence, God's guarantee may last only as long as your need is present. That beverage I was talking about, that beverage company that had the gold, five gold lids on the top of their bottles. And if you got one, brought it into the bottler, you got a lifetime guarantee of that beverage. You know what they define lifetime guarantee as? Five bottles per month for 25 years. There was a limit to it. In this case, and I'm not saying that this case is, is like all cases, but, but the, the provision that God guaranteed this widow came um, with a limit. It was good for as long as there was the need. Well, Elijah said to her, he said, he said, you will never run out of flour and you will never run out of oil until the rain stops or until the rain starts. When the rain starts, You'll be able to grow grain and wheat and you're not going to need some sort of miraculous intervention. But right now, you'll need the miraculous intervention. God's guarantee may last only as long as the need is present. Third, this widow of Zarephath, who is the recipient of God's guarantee, she became a lifetime winner because Whenever we are touched by God, we're never the same again. Within three years, it started raining. And within three years, when it started raining, her flower bucket stopped pouring. Unless she went to the store and got some more. And her oil stopped pouring unless she went and purchased more. But my friends, the deed was already done. The experience was already enjoyed. And, and can you imagine this woman five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 15, 20, 25 years down the road if she's still living and people come up to her and they, they go to introducing themselves to her and say, well, how, do you, how are you doing? Where do you live? What all's happened? Well, let me tell you what happened to me back about 15 years ago. Do you, have you ever heard of Elijah? Her life was never the same. God wants to do a work in us, in you as an individual, in your family, in our church. He wants to do a work in our time, in us, that'll be such that we'll never be the same. The real question is, will we be willing in such a crisis as this to be used of God for something so exceptional and miraculous. Three things in closing. First of all, a crisis is an excellent time for spiritual 
renewal. A crisis is an excellent time for spiritual renewal. Ladies and gentlemen, let's just face it. It's in the worst of the times that we start looking up. When things are good, our human nature is such that we don't really think about looking up. Now, we may come to church and we may worship, but we don't really cry out to God until the crisis gets hot. A crisis is an excellent time for spiritual evaluation and renewal. Second, a crisis is an excellent test for where our security really lies. What is your security? Is it in your bank account? Is it in my retirement? Is it in your home? Is it in the automobile you drive? Is it in your job? Listen, in all of the list of your priorities when it comes to your security, at what point do you put the name J-E-S-U-S there? And then third, a crisis is an excellent opportunity for us to rely on God. If nothing else, it's because often a crisis is a time when we, we will have to rely on God. When it comes to sink or swim, we're going to rely on God. What are you holding on to? Martin Luther, the great reformer, 1517, he said this. He says, I've held many things in my hands across my life and I've lost them all. Only that which I have placed into the hands of God, that do I still possess. Someone said this, what you can't give away, you don't possess. It possesses you. Billy Graham's daughter, Ann Graham Lutz, said this. She said, gold must not matter too much to God because in heaven he uses it to make pavement out of. You and I are facing a crisis. In some ways they say the crisis is getting a little better. In other ways it does not seem to be getting better at all. But I'll tell you one thing for sure, ladies and gentlemen. This crisis is a test of our security. It is a barometer to, for us to, to look and measure our own walk with God to see where we stand. And God is calling upon us, I believe, to step out in areas that we have never seen before. We saw it this morning in Ruth. Her journey took her from the place she had lived all of her life to Bethlehem where she'd never been and didn't know anybody, according to Boaz's own words. Elijah's path took him from the comfort of the desert where he was an introvert into the halls of Ahab where he was an enemy. And he said, tell Ahab he's dead wrong and challenge him. And then when you get through, go into enemy territory in Zarephath and tell a widow there who's fixing her last meal, God says, your flower won't run out. What it really comes down to, whether it's Elijah or Ahab or Jezebel or Ruth or Naomi or the widow at Zarephath, or for you or me, is this. Do we believe what God said and do we trust that he'll do what he said he'll do? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
Lord, it's so hard to get up from where we're comfortable, to leave that with which we are familiar, and to tread out into waters that have been unnegotiated by anybody we know. But Lord, we're in those waters. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to obey you. Help us to do what you say to do, regardless of how illogical it may sound to us at the time. Lord, help us to make sure that we're hearing from your voice. But once we uh, are, are sure that we're hearing from your voice, Lord, help us to obey you without question. Lord, I pray that you would move again during this invitation. Somebody is lost here tonight, Lord. They've never received you as their Savior, and they need to. Someone is without a church home here tonight, Lord, and they need to come and join this church. Someone is saved and a member of this church, but only, only they know the hurt, the pain, the concern that's in their heart that they need to leave at this altar. And Lord, when we stand up, may your Holy Spirit send out an invitation card to everybody in, these, in this building that this altar is open. In Jesus' name, amen.